What's up, everybody? Broken City Artist Podcast. Adam Watts here and Mike Jackson. Mike Jackson over there. Uh, we both have basses. Bass day. Yours is louder than mine. That's true. I win. Podcast over. See you guys later. So, two things just came up that you were uh, you brought up two different subjects that like kind of fascinated me, and I went I wanted to like press record really fast. One was. Um, Kind of how you can, on a gut instinct level, um, recognize authenticity, especially like relative to comedians and to actors. <clears throat> and the other one was, what did you just say about the '80s with music? Oh yeah, I was just mentioning how it seems like the '80s um, could be wrapped up with anything that anyone could come up with was come up with. Just the things that you would do, like you gravitate to, like, oh, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And there's like like a dozen songs right in that era that that are iconic and will never be written again. Like, okay, we can't use that. It's, or if we use it, we're going to be copying it. Yeah. Stealing. It's something just really simple. Just like, uh, what was it? It's fifth. It's just the simplest concept that a junior high kid could come up with, like yeah. me. I wrote this. <laughs> and and then all of a sudden it's a U2 song. Right. I will follow. And it's iconic. And it's just, cause you play that. And just automatically in Iron Maiden. Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, when you, right when you said that, I was like... Wait, is that true? And then I went, I went to the '90s to, ch to like oh, trouble doing, check it. We did like the, the uh... oh yeah. Right, it's just the same type of thing. Like all these, all these patterns. And that's just like patterns. one tiny little snapshot. But when you said that, I was like, okay. <coughs> so let's go to the '90s and see if that trouble checks. And instantly in my head, I was like, everything in the '90s um, was a reference to something in the decades that came before it, but that came in kind of a new package. But in the 80s, there's lots of fresh new things that were really rooted in like the technological advances, like digital recording, synthesizers, drum machines, crazy reverbs that weren't actually mod, like, you know, in, in the 70s, there were some reverb, reverb units and stuff and echo units, but the best reverbs were the ones in the 50s and 60s that were like actually reverb chambers with a speaker on one end or and the, a microphone the on the plate, other. The plate reverbs. Or the plate reverbs. The or spring reverbs right. that were in amps. Right. And the 80s was like, everybody was like, holy crap, we can like digitally create reverbs, we can digitally create synthesized sounds that previous to that were only like, like this Moog right here actually electronics creating the sound, right. you know, like different resistors and capacitors and transformers and stuff. So the 80s had this like huge, and it's funny because we were listening to some eight, like 80s stuff. Gannon was talking about that band XTC. Mm. And he was like, you gotta hear this song, you gotta hear that song. And the songs that we had played black, black to black, back to back were, one was recorded in the 80s and one was recorded in the 70s. And the one in the 70s was clearly um, sonically superior like way more punchy, way more like fat sounding. And the one in the 80s had like the appearance of fat and the appearance of size, but it was actually like, literally if you just like looked at it at the same volume level in the speakers, like everything was like smaller, yet more hypey, but not as visceral as the 70s stuff. Yet people I think were so blinded by what they could do, that right. they, they weren't well, the even The pendulum swung hard. Yeah. And then it took, it took a while for it to come back, but yeah, I have just to that, say it's beyond taste too. It's not like, well, there's natural compression from like the old tape machines, yeah, of the seventies. I, I still like one of my favorite albums of all time is uh, Fleetwood Mac Rumors, and you just listen to that and it's so fat, so fat, yeah, and it just. Ugh. I think people got, had gotten away from not only the tape compression but also like, the, extra harmonic content you get when you're using like non-digital gear like when you're using transformers and t things are going through tubes and then they're hitting tape oh that was another thing in the 80s is uh so many guitar players were going direct like just yeah. bypass like straight into the mixer and throw the effects on it that was when guitar players had like <laughs> 24 space racks in order to get like one chorus sound and then no speakers yeah 
<laughs> straight through the veins. Yeah. Um, but uh, it just pops into mind, and, and it, it wasn't just like the the mainstream stuff, but it was bands like Yes. Like I remember Trevor Raven had that yeah. total direct sound. Mm-hmm. Um, not on every album, but on a few albums there. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Like it's, yeah, but when you think about it, since the '80s, like a lot of new stuff happened in the '80s, like. Quite a bit of it sounds really dated now, but the '80s are actually coming back in a new form more than ever. You know, like with pop artists. But um, after the '80s, it seemed like you know Nirvana came out, but they were like this blend of of the '70s turning to '80s punk rock. You know, Kurt Cobain loved the Pixies, but then there was that sort of Led Zeppelin attitude that it had with riffs and stuff, and like a little bit of the Beatles and some of his progressions. I think that, that punk element was always there. It just kind of oscillated in popularity. For sure. And then definitely peaked during the Nirvana era of, of uh, its, I guess, its commercial success, yeah. so to speak. Bastardized, but still. The pendulum swung from <clears throat> a very, uh, what I refer to as like a very um, aspirational-oriented uh, all about money, fame, sex, drugs, and rock and roll of glam rock and like 80s metal, hair metal. And people are like, ugh, I want authenticity and rawness. And Kurt Cobain was there, right place, right time, right artist. You know what you're hitting on right now? What? That's my favorite topic. It's just <laughs> the topic of expression. And that Nirvana or just punk in, in general is expression without being limited by your prowess your ability oh interesting yeah so it's it's pure expression with just this is what i have to work with this is my my situation in life whether it be financial or whatever this is my gear mm-hmm. and this is this is what i know how to do and you spend and this is all this isn't thought out but this subconsciously is what happened what's happening is it's your expression it's your it's your voice whereas those metal bands i mean those guys could shred, listen to any of that stuff. And they were like technical wizards. They were also um, older. The clearly, pop star of 1987 looked like, if you go back and look at like the guys in like White Snake and Winger. They're all from like they're like purple. <laughs> <laughs> they were, yeah. They're like late 30s, 40s. Yeah. It's like the opposite of today where it's like, oh my gosh, you're almost 30. Well, you could hear, you could hear the hours and hours in there. Just in their technique, like they yeah. sat there, like learning their scales and arpeggios, and then it just it comes out in the way they they play. Not saying that that can't be expressive either, but it was such a deluge of of, of chops and and uh, virtuosity that we lost something. We lost communication. We lost the rawness of an emotion coming yeah. straight through the instrument. Yeah, it became about sh- almost showboating. Yeah. To the point where even now, like me personally, uh, I, I hear a guitar solo coming up and I tune out. <laughs> you know, it, it just it sounds like noodling. Like, look what where I Where are practiced. you hearing these guitar solos? <laughs> <laughs> Old guitar solos? <laughs> maybe just, John maybe Mayer. just like some, you know, retro station somewhere and I just right. tune out. I can't yeah. do it. Unless it's Hotel California. Do you have, what happens when you hear that? See, there's a song I, I don't think I ever need to hear again. <laughs> <laughs> Great song. But how, I mean, it's hard to deny And I just that heard one. it the other day. I just heard, and I think I actually made that comment uh, uh, to my wife. Like I, I never need to hear this song again. It's like tattooed on your yeah, brain. I it just, it's cool. I got it. I still love it. I heard it the other day. It was another example of old school classic recording. I'm kind of changing yeah. subjects again, but it came on in this really echoey restaurant filled with bricks. Shout out to Burger Parlor in Fullerton, best burgers on the planet. But the place is like really noisy and super tall ceilings, brick everywhere. And Hotel Cal- California came on, and it was like all of a sudden the drums were like thumping, and it, fe- it like it sounded better than a lot of the other stuff that, that was going on. But the plodding nature of the drumming on that is hilarious. Like it's actually it's like a good drum track, but it's just like it's so caveman. But yeah, that that uh, something about that song, man. That's 
It's a great song. Nothing against the Eagles. Nothing against. I think it's just what but society has has done to that song. It's just made it like okay, yeah. enough. But uh, to get back <laughs> to what you're saying though, like the the rawness factor of technical proficiency and like the the more you learn, the harder it gets to have like discipline with it. Basically, right? Like the more you want to use more your chops, bag of tricks. Yeah, the more chops sure. you have, the more you're like, well, check out my chops. As we, opposed to, what are these tools I have to express this simple thing? Like, to hear somebody who can shred on bass just decide to... Yeah. I think it's the same. We've had this discussion about money and just yeah. um, financial success that, that it, it becomes a shortcut to, to reach whatever goal you're trying to reach. That it's somebody who has money has has opportunities open to them that, that someone who doesn't does not have mm. and it's i think you can that's tantamount to you have the skill set to do certain things and you and now you can use that to your advantage but it's the discipline that makes the difference it's it's tastefulness like how do you define that you can't define it it's just like you know i don't know what pornography is but i know it when i see it <laughs> It's, yeah. it's sort of that, it's that... Uh, that was like a senator's yeah. uh, definition. Yeah. All you, you yeah. But <clears throat> what's, what's crazy about that is you find out... Um, I've heard this said about money, is that you find out who somebody really is when they become rich. So they're guys that, like, act nice, and then the second they become rich, all of a sudden they're jerk. Like, there's a video on YouTube. I don't... I think it seems legit real. But basically, they tricked a group of... They look like they're in their early 20s. A group of friends got together and tricked this guy into thinking he had just won the lottery, like millions of dollars. And he opens this envelope and he's like, I won. I won. And then he literally goes around the room and starts to berate everybody. I'm never going to talk to you again. Like goes wow. around and it's just a total... Like I'd everybody at least a week to do that. <laughs> right? <laughs> it was insane. Like, the guy became who he really was because he's like, I'm rich. It, like, ex it gives you the ability, just like you said, with, like, technical ability, you find out how maybe distasteful a musician can be mm. and, and ego-focused and, and, like, flashy and all about, like, look at me, look what I can do when you give them technique, which is, like, musical money. Sure. And, then <laughs> and then if you make somebody rich, you find out what they do with it. Do they get... Do they make their dreams come true? Their family's dreams and friends' dreams come true? Do they start a foundation? Or do they just, like, shut themselves off and try to make more money and more money and, and feed, you know, the sort of selfish... You know, it's that's the, that's a crazy thing to think about. Just, like... Well, there's there's been lots of movies made about... Brewster's Millions is one of them. <laughs> Great movie. Richard Price. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember exactly what that movie was about, but it's really true. I mean, we've been bouncing around a lot of topics in the last few minutes, but that's a powerful one, man, because if you have a lot of chops and then the maturity to know what to do with them, that's really what it's all for in the first place. And there's there's a, a quote from Mark Knopfler, who's the guitar player for uh, Dire Straits. Mm -hmm. This is going way back. But he was, uh, some interviewer was, was basically uh, uh, complimenting him, saying, hey, you, know, you have such restraint and such a, a maturity, um, you know, tasteful approach to, to everything you do. And, yeah. and he said, well, it's because I can't do anything else. <laughs> there really isn't any restraint. <laughs> what you're hearing is the extent of my abilities. That's crazy. You know, it, yeah, he was very humble about it. And it was funny, like a funny response. But um, I don't know what point I'm trying to make, but I just thought it was kind of interesting that, well, I think that, that how we take that in, like how we, we perceive that. Oh, that's that's restraint. And a lot of times it's, it's uh, I mean, you could take a, like a, a punk band, for example. Is that restraint? You know, or is that that's just the limit of their abilities? Yeah, and really, what is what level of ability are we talking about? Because a lot of times, musical ability is sort of looked at almost like sports ability. How high can you jump? How far can you jump? How you know how fast can you go? Basically, where it's perceived as like, oh, he has a lot of technique if he's 
shredding fast on guitar, can play a scale, so if he's going around the drum set with insane speed and accuracy, whatever, but then there's, there's that layer of technique in the arts which has to do with how you do things. And I think Mark Knopfler maybe, have, whether he was like playing humble or wasn't aware of it, is that it's it's a, how he plays a note, not necessarily how yeah, fast yeah, yeah. can he play the notes. Yeah, it's some, definitely when when uh, I'm in the capacity of a of being a teacher, mm -hmm. uh, it's something I I tell my students. It's it's how we do things mm -hmm. that makes it special because in yeah, the notes on the page, anyone can play the notes on the page. Yeah, anyone can learn that lick. Anyone can do this, but how we do it is what gives it its sort of unique stamp. I think you, a lot of times, there's something about the, um, the power of, uh, of fashion and, and a sense of now-ness can sort of blur how important how things are done are, and you see it more in retrospect. So, for example, like, um, you know, a good example might be, like, Adele. Like, she's... She's really famous and, and has songs in the charts. And then there's other artists that are right up there having the same chart position and things like that. Or, you know, you might be able to compare apples to oranges. But who's going to, when you look back, what are we going to remember and value? It's going to be the people who approach things with like a real deep sense of how they did it. Like a, a certain sort of grace and care and authenticity. We're back to that first thing we were going to talk about. It's like, I think why is Clapton looked at as a great guitar player when he's really technically, there are a lot of guys, I mean, I know a lot of un not famous people that can technically outplay Eric Clapton, but how he plays things, is, and, and also the fact that he was a pioneer, but I think it's over and over he's shown that he, it's how he plays things that's more important than even what he's playing, because he's playing a his thing is rooted in, you know, the pentatonic scale, but it's how he's doing it. I, I think it's his his level of um, maybe kind of going back to the comedian thing, where it's it's not acting, he's not putting on an act, like this is his act. Oh yeah, talk about it's, that a little bit, because we weren't rolling yet when you were talking about that. Um, I totally don't want to derail what we were just talking about, so we'll It's kind of on the same. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was just saying that uh, there's something there's some connection that, that's made with, with me personally uh, with certain comedians where I, I don't feel like it's their act or that I'm being duped. Like, yeah. ah, I tricked you, you laughed at my joke. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get that from uh, maybe like 90% of all the comedians that, that I've been exposed to. Right. Um, I, I tend to be really picky about my um, what I get enjoyment from. and. There's the ones that I do. I, I try to analyze it. Why is this guy funny to me? Why anything he says is funny? Yeah. It's just, or maybe not even funny. It's entertaining and it's interesting, and Engaging. I want to hear more. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> like one of the guys I'm just like crazy about right now, uh, Bill Burr, and then historically speaking, I'm a big fan of Mitch Hedberg and Stephen Wright. Um, those guys. Um, and yeah, you know, Stephen Wright clearly has an act. Like it's his, it's his thing, but there's something about it's so unique though. There's nobody like that before. Yeah, yeah there, there's something about his personality and and it's. Uh, I believe he he thinks that that is an interesting and possibly humorous point of view when he speaks. It's natural. Yeah, yeah. he could then, fake it. Right, and then with with Bill Burr, it's the same <clears throat> thing. Like um, I listen to his his podcast, and you know he's he's not doing any material on the, on the podcast, it's just he's speaking, yeah. and it's it's completely engaging, and there's a, it's a commercial for Billboard. I know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I try to analyze, why, why is this entertaining to me, and why do I enjoy it, and it's, there's something, especially when you, when you compare, when you have back-to-back -back, uh, comedians, I went to a comedy show uh, a couple weeks ago, and, you know, there's four comedians there, and three of them, I was like, eh. <laughs> you know, there, there's yeah. something, something about their authenticity, or I felt like it was an act, and that when I laughed, I was responding to the joke that they wrote, right? As opposed to responding to the human that's communicating. Like, I, I feel like a that's good comedian is almost interactive, regardless of the size of the venue. That's interactive. Yeah, and there's yeah. like there's two things going on. There's like the content, the written joke, 
which is sort of like the notes on the page, and then there's the performance of that joke. And I think the guys that are the most amazing, there's like a seamless integration between the content of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And like Bill Burt, like I know somebody um, that likes Bill Burr's podcast more than his stand-up. I think I fall in that category, for sure. Which is crazy. Like, like Monday can't come soon enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, did he upload it yet? Nope. Totally. And yeah. It's like <clears throat> comedy is a is a like a it's a lightning rod for I think the power of um, cr you know created art that's performed. It's like there's nothing more naked than a comedian on a stage with a microphone, living and dying by what they do. Right and how they do it. And you gotta respect that, like even if you don't like the guy or the girl, like you don't like the joke. Yeah. You gotta respect like it takes a lot of guts. That's that is the ultimate right there. You're on stage by yourself with a yeah. microphone and ready to go. It's like the I guess the other thing would be maybe like a, a one man show Broadway thing or a singer songwriter with with a guitar and a vocal. That's that's almost but, not as interactive though. Like if I have this is the song I'm gonna play. Oh no! You're yeah. Comedy it's, is is. It's like, because once if you practice dude. the song enough, <laughs> you, yeah, you can, can get, hide behind it. Yeah, you can definitely hide behind it. Dude, if some, and I think what this comes down to is laughter. Because <clears throat> laughter is involuntary, and and if if you just put your joke out there and did not get laughter, it's like you immediately know it. It's like mm. an instant test for what you're doing. And then how do you handle that? Yeah. Whereas we're conditioned to clap, even if something isn't that great, it's like you, you don't. The, the performer feels it, the audience feels it, but it's right. not as drastic as like, did they laugh or not? Right. Because that's just like, dude, laughter is the weirdest <laughs> thing in the world. You're laughing right now. Yep. What is it? I'm just picturing myself up on stage, <laughs> <laughs> failing. <That's funny>. <laughs> <laughs> think it like I have like a, a like a. I have an eight-year-old, eight-month-old son. What the heck am I saying? I have an eight-month-old son, and he laughs. He either does or he doesn't. There's no choice involved. There's no, um, as far as I know, there's no like, uh, like he's doing me a favor by laughing. If I do the as right, as far as you know, <laughs> he could be. He's big, got some empathy. He could be on some whole, yeah, some <laughs> whole other plane as a human being. Um, but yeah, there's no courtesy laugh in a kid. And the same goes for, I think people kind of don't want to laugh at some comedians. Like they're sort of like, That's make how, me laugh. I feel that. That's the, the whole duped thing. Like I feel like yeah. I'm being duped. It, it, and then you could apply it to music too. When I hear a, a pop song that's definitely like pop genre, like, like me, give me money. Yeah. You know. Um, and if I even, you know, just fraction of me likes it. You resent them? Yeah, not, that's not resent. It's like I just resist it and like I, I need to hear more. Mm -hmm. I need to do some research before I decide that I like this. And then some of it, it some of it I'm okay with. Like there's mm -hmm. there's stuff out there where I'm like, you know, I, I really I really like this stuff. I think it's genuinely um, genuinely cool. Um, oh, it just happens to be in a pop genre as opposed to someone who's a little bit more deliberate with. Um, making their way. You know what I mean? Like, this is this is how I make my way. Making your way in the world yeah. today. Hey, so check this out. On that exact subject, tell me if you've ever felt this. There have been times when I've heard, like, pop music, and, um, and I don't have, like, a real, like, I don't care what kind of music it, it is. Like, I don't have, like, a, I don't like pop, or I only like pop, any, like, whatever. Right. It's more back to that authenticity thing. If it feels authentic, it doesn't matter what style it is. It's like, I dig it. Hip-hop, you know, rock, pop, classical, whatever, jazz. But there are times in pop music where I feel like I'm struck with the, with the, like, the feeling that I'm being, no, I, I want to make sure I express this right, but with the feeling that I'm being, that I, I'm being manipulated and that they're using the power of music out of context like where I'm like being moved in this way that's making me feel an emotion that's like oh, yeah man life life is life is worth living it's good and then I check in with the lyric and it's like 
party, 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 get laid, do drugs, or what, like, just some sort of message that's, like, clearly, like, not what the music seems to be saying, on, like, a very, uh, fundamental level, and I feel like they're, like, cheating me, like, they're, like, manipulating me into, like, loving this song that really is more about appealing to, like, the high life or something. You know, I had, I had this almost exact conversation uh, with my wife earlier in the week we were talking about um, hip-hop and rap came up and I think what we got to we got to the point where it was music for party time like club club vibe yeah um, where you're there to have fun and you and you need you need some sort of groove happening mm -hmm. um, like that Clearly, for entertainment purposes, yeah, I don't put that in the same category as if someone's trying to speak to me on a on a deep level, and that I'm okay with that. Like, I don't think having rules for you know what is art or what is music, or they have to be the same thing. Can there be music without art? Um, and what's the purpose of this thing that I'm listening to? Yeah. So I think making sure that we we hear things in context, like this totally. is clearly for the dance floor and. You know, shake your booty, shake your booty, party, party. Yeah, to say um, that one is right and wrong is like totally not. It's like invalid. Like I agree with you. Right. Like I think, like not all food has to be nutritious. Like just like some some food is dessert. Right. You couldn't live off of it. I think the problem is is that the the dessert doesn't tell you. The dessert doesn't walk up and get in your face and say, you know, I'm I'm full of protein and nutrients. <laughs> And I think that's where I have a problem with it, is that You're this right. entertainment shake your booty is, is telling me they're, they're an artist. And well, society hard. is telling you, like, if you're an artist, the brass ring is entertainment. Like, that's yeah. where you're going to make your money, that's where you're going to get fame, that's where you're going to get validation. And, you know, this, <clears throat> we're not the only people thinking this stuff, but, like, it definitely makes me feel, I don't know, like, Man, what would happen, for example, <clears throat> here's an idealistic, utopian, weird thought, but, like, what would happen if we just completely, if we had the, like, um, men in black little gun, and we could just, like, like, just shoot the world and wipe everybody clean, everybody's memory clean, and they're just sitting there now, like, with a blank artistic slate, and you put on the top 10 of iTunes, or you just put like 10 songs out, and one one song that was great in every style, and like start it over, like what music would become popular? Would it still, right. 10 years from now, would it go to, to pop music, yeah. or would, would it be kind of split a little bit more with like a well, lot more people liking jazz, a lot more people liking classical? It's sort of like your, your, your am I allowed to talk about your upcoming book? Because I just did. Yeah, actually, I'm, I have to. We have to go to part two on this camera, so we'll come back and talk about. That. I, I was just saying you mentioned something about that in your in your book, as far as taste, the types of different tastes, like mm, and, yeah. and all of these, almost uh, immeasurable um, set of uh, of nuances and variables of what draws us to something. Like, is it a trend? Um, did my mom like it? Did, yeah. Do my friends like it? Um, is there, uh, you know, some sort of like retro movement involved where, oh, it's 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 cool now to like this stuff, or, you know, what is the, what is pure taste and getting down to that? Yeah, it's fascinating because I mean, you, you can't you can't possibly like something in a complete total vacuum. You have to accept that that there's there's things like when we hear, especially I think it depends on how old you are too. When, when I sure. hear a certain sound, it takes me back, like oh. I can picture my childhood listening to Fog Hat records. Or like that, <laughs> oh man, that's like, and it takes me there. It's like that's so cool and hip. Yeah. That someone made a historical choice, or a, a historical like sort of nod. Like, I'm going to use this because of what it represents. Right. You know, I mean, God, there's things like that all all around us. Um, even with uh, I don't know why this popped in my head, but like the swastika, we see that. And it's not just a bunch of straight lines in some particular order. It represents evil and right. hatred and ignorance. Yeah. And it's just 
like you can't get around that. And I think music is the same way. You hear, you hear an old Moog synth, or you know, you hear. Uh, I just did my foot pedal, <laughs> my Tom Sawyer <laughs> foot pedal. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's like the. Um, that's like the logo for hate, in a way, the swastika. Yeah. And art gets like, especially art that reaches a certain point of like prominence, I guess, in history becomes a part of the alphabet of, of the art that comes after it. So like, you know, certain like pentatonic riffs on a super heavy Marshall guitar are gonna like bring you back to these certain, the most famous versions of that, you know, whether it's um, uh, Rage Against the Machine or it goes back to Led Zeppelin before that. And there's always an origin, but it becomes a part of our language of art, you know, it's like, it's, fascinating thing the way taste works because I mean the book that Mike is referring to is um, something that I started writing about a year ago um, that you know I'm calling it like a holistic approach to the arts like the way to bring the entire self to what you do um, your psychology your spirituality your um, your level of conceptual thought like philosophy and then your physiology just like your your bodily sort of relationship to your instrument and, and technique and stuff. So it's um, it's been a year in the making and, and that's what Broken City Artists kind of was was rooted in and so the beginnings of this podcast and, and Mike and I coming back together and stuff was sort of the culmination of me kind of like writing all this all these ideas down about, you know, the bumps and bruises that I've gotten throughout my creative life and learning from them and then um, just a lot of self-exploration and, and reflection about, you know, what art means to me, what what art is historically, and like where where it all comes from, and what the purpose of it is, and how, you know, how do we as artists uh, approach what we do in a way that like actually, you know, can affect not only our own lives but the lives of others, and it's it's this really intricate process and I think I wish I could go back in a time machine to the me of you know 15 years ago erase all those tapes <laughs> erase all those tapes <laughs> um, well what I wish I could do is just is I think the, the the right piece of information or the right way of thinking at the right time can really you can shave off five years of, of pain and struggle by just um, you know the, the the right kind of perspective and, and changing your philosophical outlook on something um, it's happened to me and and I see you do it all the time I mean you know when you were teaching me as a young drummer and, and you teach all the time you, you teach through analogy a lot and I think like the power of of an analogy um, to teach the arts is just like one of many tools that you can use to actually really get yourself progressing faster and, and in the right direction. Like you your uh, your description of a your, your description of the way you want a crescendo to sound is like a really good example of shifting the way you think and having that affect what you actually do on a drum, for example. It's like remember the one I'm talking about? The curtain or the Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So I mean explain that for for the kids at home. Oh. Uh, it won't make any sense if you're not watching this, but um, <clears throat> basically, if 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 music were a, a visual art, yeah. if it were, uh, what would a crescendo look like? Yeah, it would be either black, like pitch black to bright white, or bright white to pitch black, um, and whatever whatever rate or pace that you, you, you desire. Um, so I try to, I try to create, um, it's kind of silly and the kids always laugh when I do it. But I said, basically you need to create the soundtrack to this. What so does that what, sound like? If you're just listening, he basically took a hidden finger behind his hand and made it go around the hand to be like a finger right. you can see. So is that, is that or is that yeah. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And the same thing. Is it or is it Yeah. It's it sounds like somebody things. running away in the fog. Right. And we could talk hours about the technique required 
to truly start something at inaudible mm -hmm. and to bring it to some sort of punctuation point. And then we could talk about the opposite, like taking something that's omnipresent and having it disappear right. into, the, into the blackness, like orally. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of like sophisticated technique and touch on the drum to make that happen, or any instrument, regardless. Sure. But, but uh, I found that if the kids are in the right headspace, that the technique sort of just follows. Like mm -hmm. they just, did it sound the way it was supposed to sound? No, well then keep, keep attacking it until, until you've reached the desired effect, the desired sound. And then we also talk about that the crescendo or decrescendo could be anything. It doesn't have to be a buzz roll. It doesn't have to be eighth notes or sixteenth notes. Right. So then we get on an interesting philosophical discussion about what is actually written on the paper, like the, the, the rudiment, the lick, Right. The note value is the What's least the is the least important thing. Yeah. What's important is that we took something that was omnipresent and made it go away, or we take something that's non-existent and we bring it to life. So it's about intent. Right. So it could be, or it could be, or it could be, it's from a composer standpoint, regardless of you know what the medium is, mm -hmm. it's the intent that's the important thing. Right. Each and of those versions <clears throat> that you just sort of mouthed right. have a different em, are speaking a different emotional language in whatever context they're in yeah. has a totally different kind of feeling to it than so like but the big picture is the same but yes it's different feel but the big picture is that something wasn't there and then all of a sudden it's there yeah Which we were talking about this could on, be a, like a directorial like if, you, if you're shooting a movie uh -huh. how does the director choose to implement the vision of, of the screenplay. You know, that's in the style. So is it buzz rolls at eighth notes? You know, you can kind of mesh those two ideas together. But the fact is, a new character is, is, is introduced. That's, that's the big picture. Right, and I, what's funny is you use the exact analogy I was just about to throw out, which Gannon and I touched on in the last episode, which is uh, this concept of, of uh, f-stop with photography. We're using it relative to lyrics. like. You know, when you have like a low f-stop on an, on on a camera, like a 1.2 or something, like your focal depth can be like just an inch or two or something, depending on how far you are from the camera. But so I'm deciding, like, if I'm shooting your picture here, that your face is in focus and the background's out of focus. So what we were talking about is that, like, lyrically, you can use metaphor to bring, you know, one word or one line in your song forward and obvious and in focus. And through metaphor, you can bring other lyrics out of focus so that then your ear goes to the music or your ear goes to the sonics and away from the lyric. And the same goes for, you know, what you just said. It's like, it's almost like whether or not you use, um, you know, pulling focus is like going from a super soft buzz roll to like, to a loud... Um, 30 second note roll or something would be like pulling focus on on a sound and you're getting this this sense that like like I think something I said earlier while we were talking was just like somebody running towards you in the fog yeah it's like right. the, or somebody running I was, away from I don't you know I always fog. picture Looney Tunes like the oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's a I think so the main idea is just the, to be able to, some of the things I've been fascinated with as I've been writing this book and we've been coming up with this approach, it's really not meant to be just a book, but more, um, you know, something that we want to share with people as, as to bring, you know, to help bring the focus always back to uh, truth and authenticity with, with the things that we create as artists, no matter what kind of art or what kind of artist, whether it is entertainment or whether it's really meaningful. Um, and that you can use things like, um, like you said, you know, what would this sound look like? That's an immediate paradigm shift in the way you think about what you're doing, which can really take you to a new, a new level like that. Whereas if you're only thinking about sound all the time, you know, you might paint yourself into a corner or get kind of stuck. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, I worked for this, this band director years and years ago, like over 20 years ago. And uh, he, 
he was far from a brilliant mind, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he said something that stuck with me like forever. Don't name any names. Though. I'm not naming any names. <laughs> no one will ever know. But he said, uh, and he, he kind of said it out of ignorance, but at the same time, it just it changed the way uh, the way I think about things. But he said, this needs to sound like, um, you know, this movement needs to sound like high noon, and this movement needs to sound like midnight. And I, it's just <laughs> like, you know, I was young, like 19, 20, and, uh, and I just sat on that. And like, how do I make percussion? <laughs> like, no melodic content, like it's just noises. Um, how do I make that sound like high noon and how do I make something sound like midnight and it was th this huge challenge wow. and uh, I'm, I recall it I reflect upon that as being a success like what I wrote I feel like that's high noon and that's and that's midnight um, I can't remember what it sounded like mm. I, don't, I don't remember like any of the specifics but I just remember feeling like I got it I got this and then when you when you have that that thought process and that level of, of depth when you approach something, um, I think people hear it. I think people hear it and say, "Oh, it's different." They could not like it, like, yeah, um, that's cool. But right. But mostly, I think people will hear the depth that you put into something. Um, I don't want to jump around subjects, but. Um, we were talking about the comedians and the music and all that. Um, it it kind of touches on the, the level of depth. Like when you hear a joke and you're talking about, okay, so there's the joke that's on the page, mm -hmm. then there's the delivery, and that's what brings it to life. Right. I think that the, the subtlety and the, um, the thing that might not be readily apparent is that your mind, at least my mind, takes me to what would cause somebody even think that way how did that joke come to life where did that joke come from what sort of mental path was that person on where their their mind went there and they thought to even discuss such a subject and I, I think I hear the same thing in music yeah um, when I hear composition or the way things are, are laid out and ultimately if it's a if it's a singer-songwriter um, or not a singer-songwriter but a musician that's also the composer yeah um, there's a life there that's unique um, at least the perception is unique like if, if I if I'm watching performers and I know they wrote that song there's a perception that's already unique and has a level of depth that you can't get if I'm watching a performer that's performing somebody else's song mm. that doesn't mean one's better than the other but the perception's different yeah and the, that I mean that just goes to show that there's in an art like the singer-songwriter, there's, <clears throat> there's, it's almost like a few layers of different art forms, you know? It's like there's, there's lyrics, there's music, there's singing, and then there's performance it's, of all those and it's things. it's all communication. It's all communication, but I think, you, you know, you could go Google any famous song you want and find a zillion covers of it, and you're going to realize, like, you're gonna find one that for you is the definitive version, and it may not be the one who wrote it. Right. But that's where taste comes in again, because you right. know. Yeah, and I think I think it's important to to stress it doesn't mean one's better than the other. It's just your perception of it is different. Like if if you have any sort of like capacity for depth and sophistication, mm -hmm. your perception's different. If well, I think you it's... know, if you know, if you have the information then the perception is different. Now, it might not be different if you don't know. I think that would be the great test, and that's a, I would say, though, that it's possible for somebody to write the song that's a great song and perform it solid, but not great. And for somebody to else to take that same song and connect to it on a, on a deeper level totally. as a performer than the totally. one who wrote it, and, I mean, that... I think one of the most famous examples of that, which, you oh, know... Yeah. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. I was going to go somewhere else, like to Carol King or something. Okay. Somebody who is a great songwriter with a quirky voice who's written songs that like Aretha Franklin has sung. But right. Hallelujah is a great example. Because yeah. Leonard Cohen wrote Hallelujah, 
and his version is totally different, lower, plotting, not as good, like a technically good singer, and his right. is sore. Right. And then you have Jeff Buckley's version, yeah. or, or you Rufus could do uh, version, Bob Dylan and Adele. I mean, you could, it's, it's yeah. Uh, Adele does not sing that like she's distanced from it. Right. She brought a whole different emotional perspective right. to that song. What's the song called? Um, Free, feel Make my you love. Feel my love. Make yeah. you feel my love. But, but with that said, if you listen to the Dylan version, knowing that he wrote it, the way you take it in is different. I think totally. that's what I'm trying to say. Like, and the Leonard Cohen, you know that. Okay, this is something that this guy, like, this didn't exist before he picked up the guitar. And that's really the thing, man. Is like taking something, no matter how an audience experiences it later, then you're dealing with taste and personal perspective and stuff. But like that, that process um, of going from an, taking something from an internal experience that's invisible and making it something that somebody else's senses can experience that is now some, whether it's an inanimate object or a, um, a performance that comes out and is now just floating away in the wind, you know? That's like a, you know, that's what the arts are and that's why it's such such an amazing paradigm to have as human beings. It's like transcends all boundaries, like language boundaries, cultural boundaries. It's like we all speak the language of, of the arts in one way or another, even when otherwise it might be hard to communicate or something. I don't know, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, pretty amazing thing what art is when you really sit there and think about it and zone out on the fact that like you can... I th it's almost as if the art has to be defined by the person creating it and whether or not it's art. Mm, yeah. That the intent's there. So it really doesn't matter how you take it in. It doesn't matter how the masses perceive it. It matters like where, where did it come from? What's its origin? Um, what, what was the the intent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's just too. It's too. Like, to wrap your head around it, I mean, which is kind of what your your book is about. It's like, right. it's it's uh, it's taking something that that maybe shouldn't be defined, like when you get to the end result. But at the same time, the thing I love about your book, what I've read of it so far, is is that it, it takes a nurturing approach mm -hmm. that what do we do with with future artists or that people that have that potential in them how do they harness that how do they how do they stay on the path um, to be mentally healthy in a place where they can create true authentic genuine expression regardless of media um, I think that's that's what's being said. That's my perception anyway. That's what's being yeah. said in your your manuscript so far is that that uh, um, there's a psychological part of being an artist that's uh, rarely talked about. We see the results of it all the time. Oh yeah. This guy killed himself. This guy took too many pills, and this you know. Um, <clears throat> but we don't we don't really talk about what's happening with the artist or the potential artist in context with them still being around them still um, experiencing that struggle yes I mean, we don't get to them soon enough is basically it it's like it's all like nobody could talk Kurt Cobain out of what he was going to do he was going to do what he's going to do um, and there's no way to, to get to him at that point unreachable and but, side note now there's a new documentary that, that that's all like conspiracy oriented that he didn't kill himself but we won't even go there but I just watched the Amy Winehouse documentary well first of all thank, thanks for saying that about the, you know what I've written so far but that is there is a lot of um, I don't know, what was the word you used it wasn't empathy but um, you know like I, I feel for artists and being one I know the struggles that you can go through as an artist when you're trying, to, when you feel like you need to express yourself through some artistic medium, almost as a survival mechanism in life, and that art has has done that for you, and you seek to do it not only for yourself but because you want to communicate with the world, and uh, you know, there's I have a lot of empathy for what artists go through because you know I've 
I've had my own like very private struggles with, you know, bumps and bruises, like I said earlier, of, of being an artist and and trying to get something that's on the inside out into the world and feeling like the flaws are going to get in the way. And, you know, that if, if I was just like that much of a different person, maybe I would, maybe I would have chosen drugs and to soothe that pain that I felt. Um, or, you know, just who knows if I would have had fame in an area that where I was weak as psych psychologically, maybe it would have destroyed me. I mean, that's, that's why I brought up the Amy Winehouse documentary because in watching it earlier in her, in her career before, um, she was the person that I think the world knew who was very, you know, drawn out. You could tell, I mean, she, the difference between her pre-drugs and after drugs. And, in, you know, in the documentary, it shows that she was kind of messing with drugs a lot, like throughout her career. But I think when she hit the hard stuff, she just got really skinny and, and act, acted different on stage. But before she hit that point, somebody asked her like, you know, you, what's your goal or something like that? Like, do you want to, you want to be famous and whatever? She's like, well, I don't not making the kind of music that's ever going to get famous. Just, I just kind of want to be left alone to make my art. But if I did get famous, I think it would destroy me. She said that in an interview. And then she got famous and it could be argued that that's part of what destroyed her. I mean, you could, you could say that's not what destroyed her. It was the drugs or it was the relationships she was in or whatever, but I think it's, it's the lack of, uh, it's the inaccurate expectations and it's the lack of preparation. Um, yeah, there were frailties. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it sucks to say it because it's, you know, it's a life, but it's like she destroyed herself. Nothing destroyed her. And well, that's, go on. Okay, throw, throw that argument back at me after this because I think in a lot of these cases, there's, there's two sides of it. There's nature and nurture. So, if you're prone to addiction genetically, let's say, and you might have different beliefs systems about what is nature and what is nurture, like is alcoholism run in families or does it become a way, but like there's, there's some really strong evidence to support that addiction is really tied to trauma more so than it's tied to um, something like genetic, a genetic disposition but there could be genetic factors in it. But, you know, she, she had a very, um, you know, her dad left when she was young and all the people around her talk about how that affected her. Like he wasn't around. And then at a certain point, maybe she was a little under 10 years old or something, or maybe she was 11 or 12, her dad left for good. And she talks about what that felt like. She's like, I felt like all of a sudden I had permission to do whatever I want, say whatever I want. Like she just said, screw it mentally because her dad left. And I think when you, when you look at her life, you can sort of trace back that it's like the fuse is lit in her childhood due to her, her dad leaving. And then the bomb finally went off when she made a bunch of choices, which are so complicated you can't even really unpack but it led she ended up dying young so i don't even know where what your argument was but she did do an oh and I she did it to herself like you know, barring those were choices <coughs> but when you're a kid it's not a choice yeah well i mean barring trauma mental illness there's things that can be done and you can't reach everybody that's impossible but there's things that can be done um just as part of the curriculum of of the arts for sure that this can be talked about um and every from i mean obviously that's the, the the heaviest it can get is is your your life your 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 existence that's on the far end but even simple things it's just uh um to quote a friend analysis paralysis <laughs> I'm sitting there just overthinking something and should I do this? Should I not do that? And does it need to be this? Oh, what are people going to think about it? And just, like all those battles that we, yeah. that some, some of us, um, and I've, I've certainly been there uh, too many times. I get there at the end of every album I make. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, when, when are you going to be, and here's, maybe we should end the podcast with this. 
vulnerable. Yeah. Let it be vulnerable. Whatever you're doing, that's okay. I mean, that's. I think that just needs to be talked about from square one. Like, you know, you're you're in art class, whether it's painting or or playing guitar or whatever. That if if there's any talk of creating and actually being an artist mm -hmm. um, or expressing yourself, uh, and maybe that's it. Maybe those comedians that I like are vulnerable. They are. They're bringing themselves to what they do. They're bringing their truth to what they do. Vulnerability is, is the, the ability to um, you know, express your truth in an honest, open way. Like, and to be okay with people not liking what you're doing and criticizing it to, in advance. Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, I don't want to leave this point, that, the previous point, without touching on this part of it when we were talking about Amy Winehouse and stuff, but, you know, in a way, when, when somebody, when you're self-medicating, you're, there's, there's something, there's some sort of pain that you're trying to, uh, that you're either afraid of or that you don't want to feel, and, you know, for her, you know, maybe going on stage was extremely vulnerable and she had to be drunk, or maybe the, you know, all the things that she went through with, with her dad there was a vulnerability that she had, obviously, when her dad left when she was a kid, where she was injured, so she had to cover that up and hide it. So, and those, I think that's a lot of that psychological part that it, you know that that I've written a lot about for in this book, and that I think should be brought to arts education and just thought about in the world of the arts is just like if you know somebody that's going through that some that stuff, be the vulnerable one that goes up to them and, and reaches out and like doesn't take no for an answer because you can you know intervene not even in the in an intervention sense you don't need to necessarily book that event where the family shows up but be vulnerable with that person go look I love you like why why are you doing this oh get whatever get away like that could end up with death so like being vulnerable and and being a safe place for somebody to be vulnerable with you can actually change. And obviously saving a life, like you said, is like the ultimate end, but saving a little, a work of art, you know, like there are works of art that die inside artists every day because they're not willing to be vulnerable. And that's kind of what you were saying, like paralysis by analysis. It's like you're basically murdering this little work of art by overanalyzing it and being afraid to be vulnerable. like. Which is is a little mini tragedy, I think, because I think there's lots of ways that you can hide your vulnerability. You can cover it up with pretending to be somebody you're not. You can cover it up with acting cool, doing the thing that sounds cool. I think it's it's actually you said being afraid of being vulnerable. I think it's okay to be afraid. Yeah. Be afraid after you sign it. Like <laughs> I, have no, I have a friend who always says, "Sign the painting, sign the painting." Oh right. And even when we're not talking about painting. Um, but it's like sign the painting it's off it's in the record store you know it's done yeah people are buying it or they're not buying it and now you can be afraid because at least you followed through and you made it happen and then you can do what you want with that emotion totally and there's a way to be fearful vulnerably like fear and vulnerability aren't um, opposites like it's, you can you can be any emotion and add vulnerability I think vulnerability is just the ability to to put it out there and say I'm afraid as opposed to like go, being afraid and then acting like you're not and then not releasing it or, or yeah. taking the easy way out and doing something that's not truly you that's not genuine doing what you think people want to hear or see yeah so I have a, I have a recommendation to end on if if uh, or my we'll do closing comments. <laughs> There's a book by Seth Godin, um, G O D I N. He has a great daily blog. Um, sort of a marketing expert slash uh, you know awesome lover of arts. Movies. Just yeah, great great guy. Um, lots of great videos on him on the internet of him speaking and stuff. But he has a book called V is for Vulnerable, and it's a very uh, foundationally serious philosophical book about artists and being vulnerable and it just 
almost in like a children's book kind of way, walks through the alphabet and V is for vulnerable. And every word has like a, or every letter has a word attached to it and like a small piece of advice. And V is like, be vulnerable. And it was it's a great book. You like scream through it in like 20 minutes. But it, I highly recommend that. You can get it online. Um, have you seen that one yet? I have not. That's great. I'll check it out. Yeah. So anyway, guys, thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in again. Adam Watts out. Mike Jackson. Thank you. See you guys. Ringing sound, poison rain, don't come around, here again, I will cover you, you will feel no pain, wait for the Money's gonna lie